0: Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast, hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists... Hello, I'm Peter O'Toole and today I spoke with Dan Davis from the University of Manchester about being professor at such a
1: young age. I think it's actually really important that we always remember that these titles are are a bit nonsense. The importance of technical staff as revealed by the Wellcome Trust survey. Technicians in labs might be made to feel sort of like second class citizens and and there's no way that that, you know, we've got to change that. And for the worst joke ever told in this podcast
0: series so far.
1: No, I'm not a comedian. all
0: in this episode of The Microscopists. Hi, I'm Peter O'Toole. Today I'm joined by the great Dan Davis from University of Manchester and The Microscopists. Dan, hiya, how are you doing? Hi, Peter, how
1: are you doing?
0: Uh, I, well, i just ask you that question. You can't ask ask the same question back without answering it. <laughs> I'm good, how are you?
1: Yeah, I'm good, I'm, I'm
0: doing well. What about you? Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'm actually very well, and thank you for joining me today. I've got to say, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Oh uh, dear. Okay. All right, Pete. That's a, I don't know. I don't know whether I, <laughs> I don't know whether that sounds good or bad. Well, good for me. Maybe trouble <laughs> for you. We'll find out as we go along.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah. I, I remember the first time we met. You know, there's so many people I, I meet. I some people are re- some people are really memorable, and it was back I think 2000 two-ish, I think, back at a, actually it was an RMS conference, I think it was the first Royal Microscopical Society conference I ever went to, organised by Justin Malloy in Oxford at the time. And I remember you being there as this young, really big name immunologist, and you must have been what, 32, 33 at the time, and yeah, cruising towards your professorship, which you got at the young age of 35. And yeah, I knew of you. I heard you talk. And there you are, casually lounging around in your T-shirt, rucksack on your back, looking as casual and as laid back as ever. And do you know what? You haven't changed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I can't recall. I, I certainly remember hanging out with you in conferences. I'm not sure I can precisely recall that one exactly. But, I mean, everyone, everyone much more informal when we meet at conferences, right? It's not just me. Yeah, no, I'd I have been super casual then. But
0: I know, I, <laughs> I, I think back in back then, the old guard was still quite formal. Uh, yeah, if you think about that, like, Tony Wilson would have been there. Uh, even Justin was there. So, and they were all
1: certainly shirt wearing. I mean, there, there is something in that, isn't there? Like, it's not just uh, it's not just an anecdote from a meeting that you and I are at. It's also true that in general, in society. Uh, you know, scientists used to be all in all in suits, all male dominated. Uh, or, well, okay, there were obviously great women throughout history and science. But that it has, you know, the people that do science has changed dramatically uh, in the course of our careers. And and also the yeah, the chit chat, the banter at meetings, things were a lot formal, uh, uh, a lot more formal, I think, in in bygone times. And it's true, I think, that now. Yeah, now things have relaxed. People are much more themselves in meetings. The personalities uh, are quite colourful in, in a lot of these uh, uh, meetings we go to. So yeah, it's probably true in general that there's been a kind of change over the last few decades in in how formal people are at scientific events. Yeah, you know, I've just realised the irony that here I am sitting wearing a shirt.
0: <laughs> That's fine. It's fine. Like, it's fine. It's not like it's yeah. not fully buttoned up and there's yeah. no tie on it. <laughs> And it's not beige. <laughs> <laughs> very good, Peter, very good. It was certainly the colour back then anyway. So, Dan, you know, you're, you're very modest. You're not going to talk too much about it. But you did become a professor at the age of 35, uh, which is very young. How daunting did you find that?
1: Well, uh, it, I, I think that, you know, I think that when when you're younger, you, you sort of, or at least for me, I didn't think about it as much. I didn't think about uh, career structures or titles or or career progression as much as maybe I'm forced to now, or, or or other young people I come across often think about. Like I think that I think that. Um, you know, I, I did physics first. I went to the USA and did and did then did biology, and it was just part of the momentum and excitement of what we were doing. Uh, and I think the reason that I, one of the key reasons I wanted to because you have to apply to be a professor, you have to fill out a form essentially, then they judge it. So there has to be some active thing. It doesn't none of this stuff just sort of lands in your face. So, and I think one of the things I remember thinking was that the the titles that people have are useful for how others perceive you so that was why it was going to be useful to me so if students are looking to do their phd in a lab if i'm professor whatever for whatever reason even though i know all the titles are nonsense i would i would be seen as a better bet to do my someone might want to pick my lab to do their phd project in so in that sense the titles can be important but i think it's actually really important uh that we always remember that these titles are are a bit nonsense. Uh, uh, the, you know, the, it's really academic life is full of race to gain status, and and I think it's quite important that we uh, remember that we're we're all in it together. We're all trying to discover something important. We're all trying to uh, uh, push forward our knowledge, produce things that are benefit to society. You know, you know these titles lecturer senior lecturer reader professor or whatever it is in the u.s assistant professor i mean yeah you have to go through the motions but you know they're not they're not that crucial (laughs) i think that's brought two important things forward actually
0: firstly i'm even losing my train of thought listening to you damn you man (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know some people when they get their professorship actually they feel as though they've made it and they take their foot off the pedal you know, they've got the status, and they'll sit back, uh, which certainly hasn't happened to yourself. And I guess because you don't recognize the status, particularly, you are research driven, and and the most successful out there are, but it doesn't matter, because you keep going. Uh, And that's hard to
1: keep that momentum at all times. You know, yeah, I don't think, you know, all the people that you meet, you know, you mentioned all these conferences we go to, uh, all the people that we meet, in these uh in scientific meetings the people that are that that you see give a great talk and it's all exciting or or people you meet and they're colorful they have lots of things about them as well as the sun you know i don't think that they're too fussed about their title or status uh you know so it's true being a professor is good you know you, you get you get uh you get noticed as being a professor, but it's also true that it's total, it's, it's, it's just a madness, all these titles. And, 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 you know, we need to, everyone has to be aware. Of, I mean, there, there are obviously practical things about, that, that, that come with career progression, like obviously getting a permanent, secured job might be important in, in some way. Uh, and, and short-term contracts have their problems and the status of technicians in labs, for example, might be another area where there's work to be done to, to make that uh, how it should be. But the, but, the, but the, you know, titles like professor are, you know, neither here nor there really, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I might get into trouble with what I'm going to say now. So hopefully you won't
0: need editing out afterwards. You mentioned the technicians. In labs, And obviously I, I, I'm in a service where all my staff are classed as technicians. I would argue they're more research, uh, almost career postdocs, but technology bias rather than really driving behind one subject all the time. And I, you know, I think that's a really good career path. It suits them. Uh, they are very successful in what they do. It's not wrong. And yet the word technician still has this stigma
1: about it in some quarters. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally, uh, I'm totally on board with that. And, uh, you know, the Wellcome Trust did a survey of how, of various attitudes within the structure of science at the beginning of the year. And one of the things that came up was also, was true that I think it was right, that we need to, there are examples where technicians in labs might be made to feel sort of like second-class citizens. And, and there's no way that that, you know, we've got to change that. Uh, there are several things about science that we need to, that we need to work on obviously uh diversity uh is a, is a crucial issue but but there are other more nuanced issues within science very specifically which would include things like the status of technicians in labs it is it is hard to to, to get it right because if you it, like if you give people full-term contracts permanent jobs right off the bat you know maybe maybe, maybe there's an argument that people won't stay fresh and keep and keep uh keep up the momentum and drive that's needed to 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 keep us pushing forward knowledge as, in the best way we can but equally you've got to acknowledge that people have got very complicated lives outside science and and, and short-term contracts definitely have problems
0: now this conversation is going completely different to as i thought thinking about those stresses of the short-term contracts i think if you if they had longer term or more permanent positions but also maybe help the integrity of publications. I think there is a pressure for people to cut corners, be economical with the truth with some of their results. and Ultimately, a lot of them get caught out. But I do worry that some of the scientists out there are so eager to get the next big publication that they do massage, ch- cherry pick. I, I don't want to be disingenuous. To, 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 that's not the right, you know what I mean, to anyone. Uh, but I do think that culture does encourage, in- a minority a very
1: small minority but it is important to acknowledge well I, I mean I think one of the things I'm quite passionate about saying is is that we're not in the business of publishing uh that we're, we're trying to make scientific discoveries and that is our priority uh and because of the, you know, because of, because science has become so structured as a, as a career, which is a result of so many people doing it, you know, like you said, right in the beginning, uh, people used to be more formal, and that's true, and there, but there also used to be a lot less people doing science, Uh, and right now, I mean, there's any number of people doing science, if I put out a job advert for a postdoc. I think the last one I did, I had like 150, 200 mm. applicants, you know, and I'm, half of them, I'm pretty sure, are going to be great postdocs, if not all of them, That's right? Because you're a professor. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so the structure, the 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 uh, of science makes it that we do have this intense focus on publications, uh, and I don't know what exactly the right way out of that is, because it is true that publications are very very important but really it's the science itself that's important and and you know sometimes we can get caught up even in my own lab uh, we can get caught up in the sense that you know we need to publish we have to publish what we've got even though even though I know it, it it would be better if we carried on for a bit and nailed this or that part of the of the story but I know also we have to publish I know also that the that the contract of that person is three years four years so we have to publish their stuff and then we need to because they need to get the next job etc so there's all these all these things get caught up in the way in which we do science and, and it's become it's become very complicated but you know we just got to stay uh talking about that and we've and I think you know lab heads would instill their their own ethos within their own lab about that, and and I think most of the great scientists, not me, the great scientists, I mean, they would they would be telling their lab team, you know, to. Fa- in fact, when you spoke to uh, Jennifer Lipkowitz Schwartz in this series, um, she said that it's such a huge effort to get to, to produce a paper that you only really want to do that when you've got something really important to say. I'm paraphrasing exactly what she said, but it was that it was that sense.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I asked someone else as well, and one of their favourite publications, I think, took them nine years from the start, from the inception to getting it published. They're published lots in between. Yeah, but that that slow burner it, it's, it can take. Yeah, a some lot papers
1: time. Are, are a real uh, uh, slow burn. Yeah, and there's um, actually in the in the course of uh, in, in the later part of my career, I've I've written a couple of books, and, and that involved interviewing. Uh, many tens of great scientists and I remember interviewing uh Pamela Bjorkman about so she did the with Don Wiley and Jack Stromer did the crystal structure of of a protein HLA2 and it, it did take her something like eight or nine years I can't remember exactly I remember asking her about what 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 kept her going through that and it's really difficult because something like a crystal structure of a protein I mean nowadays you can do it quite easily but this was uh some time ago the the mid to late 80s and um uh, there's no kind of halfway moment where you've got a bit of a you've either got the you've either got the structure of the protein or you haven't and until you get to that point you haven't like half discovered you haven't really discovered anything right? until you, <laughs> you get there anything. so it takes great perseverance and it takes uh if if there's anything about what might. Uh, uh, I mean, there's all different kinds of people do science, but is there anything sort of general that emerges over the people that are very successful? It is, it is about, it is having a sort of inner belief that you're going to get there. And and that sort of fuels the perseverance that you need. I, I love the fact that you dished structural
0: biology saying it's easy now. They'll love you for it. <laughs> <me. laughs> I'm sure I could just take that
1: quote. Well, I mean, it is uh, easier. And and now they make it more complicated for themselves by trying to look at lots of more uh, new complicated structures and interactions and whatnot
0: yeah well that, that's taking into the cryo em they're, they're only doing that so they take all the research money to themselves no, I, I am joking <laughs> 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 careful what i say again good grief yeah so you also, do you know what was interesting right at the start you mentioned that your first degree was in physics oh physics yeah 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 and here you are as a successful immunologist That. Why it's a big shift in field?
1: Thank yeah, well, it wasn't. Again, it wasn't like a, a, sort of planned thing. Well, so so I did physics. First, so I think I think at a young age I wanted to do science, and and physics was uh, what what I wanted to do because it was laws that work across the whole universe. So what could be more important than than that? What could be more fundamental than? the way in which the whole universe works. So that was what I had to work on. Uh, and I really, you know, I loved it. I loved doing physics at university and then went on to do my PhD in physics. But then I, I think I actually just genuinely changed my mind that about what was important. I thought that laws that work in the whole universe must be the most fundamental thing. And then I literally changed my mind and thought actually life is even more fundamental than that, even though you could only study life in one space, one place within the universe. Still, and I, and I think I also started to see that um, that I could make a, I might be able to make a better contribution to science if I started thinking about how life works. Because at least the type of physics I was doing uh, was a bit, I felt was a bit more esoteric, and, and I needed to get to where the action was, which was in biology. So. So I decided I will switch from physics to biology. After so after my PhD in physics, I then went to study biology. But then which aspect of biology I would study was a little bit more random than that. So I simply wrote to lots of labs in the USA. So I wanted to go to the USA because I also felt at that time that that was also where, where the action was, where lots of things were happening. So I wanted to go to live in the USA for a while. Uh, and I simply wrote to basically famous people that were in a city that I thought would be fun.
0: yes. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, well, probably, yeah. So, uh, yeah, actually a couple of them won Nobel Prizes since. So I definitely picked, picked the right sort of people. Um, and uh, and then, uh, to my surprise, I got quite a few letters uh, back from people that actually taking someone from physics into a biology lab was actually what quite a lot of people did want to do. They saw that there was something exciting about that in quite especially in the us where labs can be quite large so I, I, i even though i might be a bit of a risk as a physicist in a biology lab there'll be a structure of 20 other people that are going to get them the papers they need anyway so that's fine so they can just take someone like me and see what happens and so then yeah so then i switched into immunology and that was a little bit more random uh but yeah then i got into immunology and then when i got there uh that was when i suppose i kicked off with the the kind of work that i'm very slightly known for in the immunology stuff very slightly known for for goodness sake
0: <laughs> uh, I, I think I, I think it's a key point and do you know what? so many people that i talk to their careers have never been they've never had a career they, they've never known where they're heading they, they've started typically in physics or chemistry and they've ended up in the field of biology through all sorts of convoluted routes and following their passion and the opportunity and finding where their strengths are and playing to their strengths and moving forward with it but that is quite a big yeah shift. we've
1: got to, we've got to instill that in uh, in young people today because i think as well we because of the structure of science because it's come very competitive people do tend to go from degree to phd to postdoc to postdoc to fellowship to having their own lab in a, in a more linear way and it, and it is you know, we need to make sure people do retain the sense of it's kind of fun and fluid and you should be able to do stuff. And that, and that, that I mean, it is hard. I think it's all a consequence of there being a lot, a lot of people doing science. And that makes it harder to do that. But yeah, so that's, uh, that's where we are. But, but we've got to try and keep it fun. <laughs> I, I will give a shout out. Certainly in the UK, the research funders
0: are actually quite good at encouraging well, switching disciplines and moving and using your expertise in a completely different area yeah uh, yeah because
1: also that uh that's that's what that's uh that's how you can get this illusion of creativity very easily so if i'm coming in from physics and there's some biology, i'll just say i remember you know i remember going into um so i was working with jack Stromer in harvard university with all these epic people doing doing stuff they were looking at uh it, it was a time when a particular type um of immune cell uh was it had been discovered in 75 but the molecular details of how it really decided whether another cell was healthy disease that was all just coming out um and i just said oh that looks pretty cool yeah what happens if we heat up the cells a bit <laughs> what are you what are you jay what they were like what what do you mean heat them up a bit that's like crazy and i was just thinking oh you know well, when you get a fever the thing you know the body temperature goes up let's just heat up the cells and see what happens i mean probably people have done this 50 years ago but i didn't know and then it actually turned out that you know the immune cells would would suddenly recognize these uh uh cancer cells and other cells much more effectively when you when they were heated up a little uh, to 41 or 42 degrees and then and then you know I, I mean i sort of didn't pursue that other people but it did turn out much later that you know you get a very specific stress response induced in cells that lead to the upregulation of uh, proteins that are specifically put up at the cell surface when a cell is stressed out, when it's heated up. So there are, you, if you just come in from a different discipline, you just have, you might say wacky things that are good, good for you and good for the people that are working in that area. As long as as long as long you're all, you know, we, you know, I made a lot of good friends at that time as well. So as long as you're sort of bouncing around and it's all, good natured you know you can it's really good for science to mix it up like that yeah to so the beauty of naivety yeah th- yeah there's a lot of that in it i think i think it's really great to come in uh to a lab and be like what's that Peter? You're, f- you're flushing so, up so, on a, a picture so, dan you, you said you said you forwarded some pictures so so when i got into the uh an immunology lab um uh you know so, so they were doing the sort of the stuff that immunologists at that time did a lot of, which is you'll, you'll have a cell uh, and, and a type of immune cell. They working on the a natural killer cell. So these are these are just one of your white blood cells that are very good at killing uh, certain types of cancer cell and some virus infected cells. Um, and, and, and at that time, they were looking at how does that type of immune cell see that another cell uh, is diseased? And so the way that you, you do that, there are several ways you could do that. What people were doing is you just sort of make antibodies against all the different random proteins that the NK cell might have, for example, and you find ones that might stop the killing. Uh, and then you know that that's sticking to something that might be really important. Or you could uh, genetically mess with the cell in some way and find versions of the cell that can't kill or can kill better. And that way you dig into the details of molecular recognition how the nk cell sees that another cell is healthy or diseased so i came into the lab uh and i i said well that is really amazing now we're, now we're working out you know that this protein sticks to this other protein and that then triggers the nk cell to know that that is a cancer cell but why does it take 10 minutes for that to happen what, what is what actually going mean, on what the image for, the, for those listening to it you've got, you've got the nice
0: image of that recognition to start with and then the cell well not looking too good after 10 minutes really is
1: it? Yeah so I just took these cells to the microscope facility which as far as I no one had ever no one had ever been to this microscope facility I mean not from the from where i from the building where I was so I mean uh, uh, and then just looked at these cells interacting so that there you could see is a natural killer cell from someone's blood it's sticking to another cell and it kills it within within 10 minutes so that then although you have all, all the knowledge was building up around the details of which protein is important for all of this stuff to happen there wasn't a lot, there wasn't a good sense of the space and time of that what 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 are, how does that play out over the few minutes that the cells are stuck together and then it turned out that uh, so this was 95, 96, uh, 97. So the so GFP had just been uh, cloned. Um, Chalfi, who, who got, the, Martin Chalfi got the Nobel Prize, uh, uh, along with uh, uh, Roger Chen and Webb, And, what Web and, that, and, and um, you know, so GFP was a, was a new thing at that time. And so putting GFP onto the end of the MHC protein, so one of the really important proteins in how immune recognition works, that's what I decided to do um, to look at how this plays out over the few minutes of the interaction. Yeah, so then, so then I guess what, what you could see is that, you know, the GFP-tagged proteins sort of moved up to the contact between the cells. So to me, that was, like, super exciting. But it was, it's true that, you, you know, someone who knew what they were doing might have expected that. Because you could already, uh, it was already known that, like, when beads stick to a cell, they accumulate proteins at the contact so so i was getting i was like oh look at these super cool pictures but m- maybe other people would have said oh yeah i, I well, must say the image awesome.
0: quality did get somewhat better than the first images that you had back in 95
1: <laughs> <laughs> so then but what was really surprising at that time was if you sort of used a, a, a confocal so taking z slices and, and i mean it's hard for me to know what the general field was i had just come from physics to biology, and it was really cool for me to do that i don't know if around the world, this was something people were doing, or not really. Um, but if you image down between the two cells, then the different proteins were organizing themselves into sort of patterns. And that then became the immunological synapse. So uh, Avi Kupfer, um, uh, who's now at, at John Hopkins, he 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 did see that first before me. He did that in T-cells. Uh, Mike, Mike Dustin um, did similar work. Uh, to avi uh, and I did it in nk cells and uh, I mean my, my sense of it is that i mean i didn 't really know, i didn 't know about their work when I was doing that, but it did but my, the, certainly my paper was after this and um, uh, and that was a, that was really fun and really exciting to me and uh, but I was very nervous about about the whole thing i didn 't really i saw on the screen uh, uh, when you reconstruct the Z stack images from a confocal, I saw on the screen. That these proteins were not evenly distributing between the two cells, there was some pattern to that. I saw that, but I was also very worried that I was making it up in my head, uh, and I wasn't. I wasn't at all confident that I was get, doing this right. So, in one of the times I had my my wife, I mean, uh, well, she she does do scientific things around. She was doing some uh, uh, genetic analysis work over the Dana Farber Cancer Institute, but she doesn't do anything like Like wet experimental science, Um, and so I had her come and sort of look at the pictures and do essentially do the experiment on the microscope with me, just saying how the microscope works. You know, checking does this is this? Am I making this up, or does it look like there's kind of rings and and splotchy patterns with holes and different proteins are going in different places? Uh, And then, yeah. So then I'm yeah. I think a lot of science. is about gaining confidence in what you're doing. And, and you know, Pete, with, with microscopy, this couldn't be more important because, you know, in microscopy, it's really hard to know what you're doing. You'll, you'll see all kinds of weird stuff. If you just look at, if you just look at a few cells bumping around, uh, you can ask a very specific question. You know, you would have set up the experiment in some way that is trying to answer something. But out of the corner of that, movie you just took there might be something weird going on and and it's really hard to know whether you should investigate that weird thing a little bit more or it's just a bit weird or even or even did, did you just see that or were you just making that up right so i think microscopy is really psychologically difficult for those reasons um yeah or can be a rabbit hole as you start chasing something that was
0: really really rare to see and you'll never replicate it again. So actually,
1: even even in those very early pictures that I took, I would often see a GFP-tagged protein in one cell uh, end up in the other cell that I didn't put it in, right? So there'd be a fluorescent protein in one cell, the immune cell, let's say, and that that other protein would swap over to the and and I would see that, and I would say that this is just uh, it's just mad. I I put it down to maybe the cells die, bits of dead cell move around. I don't know. I just I, I wasn't strong-willed enough to know that that could be a really important phenomenon until I saw another paper show that. So Jonathan Sprent uh, had a paper in Science that showed proteins move from one cell to the other uh, in these immune cell interactions. And then I thought, oh, I've been seeing that for years. Right. We need to seriously, we need to follow this up. And then that led to a a few years of Several years, in fact, of work that we did on how things are moving around between immune cells, and I still think that's an untapped area of immunology. That cells aren't sticking to the proteins they make; they're swapping them about very commonly. Which kind of leads on. I, I, I will get
0: off science in a minute and start talking about other things, but I guess talks on to the microtubules, which for the nanotubules, you're one of the first, or one of the co-discoverers. So Those
1: nanotubules. So these, so these, so these are the yeah. So these are nanotubes. So these these pictures were taken by Bjorn Onfeld. He now has his own lab in the Karolinska Institute as a professor there. But but when he was in my lab, um, yeah. So we were working very deliberately on things swapping around between cells because I, I just had seen that myself, and my first PhD student Leo Karlin uh, dug into that in some detail and published a, a paper on that. And then you know we saw all these long thin strands of membrane connecting these. Uh, immune cells to, to, together, and we called them uh, membrane uh, nanotubes. Uh, Hans Hamann Gerd who's sadly uh, died. Uh, he he published a paper in Science on these on, on structures that are very similar to this, or perhaps the same as this. Um, and we followed that up. Uh, I don't. I can't remember exactly. A few a few months later, maybe a couple of months later, with a short paper saying that these structures are quite common. And again. It's one of those things in microscopy where you can see these things, right? So when I first gave talks on these thin strands of membrane between immune cells, I would always get someone in the audience saying, well, I saw that in like 1970, like, well, what are you doing? And I was like, yeah, I mean, it's not difficult to see strands of membrane that stick between cells. They're very common. But the issue is, the change in thinking is, is that really important? Is that doing something? Is that... Is that creating a mini synaptic structure at the tip of the nanotube that is sending a signal down the tether uh, from one cell to communicate over a long distance? Or is it even in some situations a sort of hollow tube and things are trafficking uh, from one cell to another? I mean, there has to be some gating mechanism to that because it can't be that cells are transferring everything from one cell to another. So it opens up, it's just a change in mindset that these strands of membrane are really, really important. But you know, so that's that's where we got. That's where we got with that.
0: Which comes back to you may have seen it in the seventies, but if you didn't study it or publish it, and back to publications, <laughs> then no one knows and, and no one's followed it. And no one's tries to understand it. Once you publish it, people try and understand
1: it to a greater depth and see if it's relevant to their areas and stuff. Well, it also it's also uh, it, uh, uh, there's another nuance to all this, which is that uh, which is really important for microscopy, which is that even if we discover. That these strands can do this or that between cells under our, you know, super high-powered uh, uh, laser-based scanning microscope. You know where and when is that happening in the body? So you've got to be a bit careful. So that is a that's a huge challenge for all the cell biology that's going on. Um, exosomes is is a is a good example of that. Lipid rafts was a was a great one for that. And these membrane nanotubes are in this category of a lot of stuff. They could a lot of stuff could be happening in this way, in which we can't easily see inside the human body or inside an animal. Even it's is is so. So there's a limit to our knowledge, which comes very directly from a limit in the technology. Moving on slightly from that, you went
0: over to the states and. I, I I I don't know how old you were when you went there. You were in your 20s, I'm presuming, at this point, when you went over to the US. And you were obviously really keen to get over there. But how did you find moving to the US?
1: Uh, so I, I absolutely loved it. So I went, um, I think I'd just turned 26, maybe I was 25, something like that. And I went to uh, uh, the US Harvard. I remember arriving in the lab, um, I can... I can remember, it was a blizzard. I was in Boston. I mean, you couldn't see anything. It was just masses of snow everywhere. I was staying in the youth hostel there, um, and, and I came into the lab. I mean, there was this lab bench with bottles and liquids and like it was mad. I was like, "What is? What is this? What is? this like madness." Because I hadn't, I hadn't, you know, done anything in a biology lab, right? Yeah, so it to. was, yeah. I was like, well, "Where's the where's the laser table?" You know, it was like so. Uh, it was but i was really excited about it i was really excited about the opportunity and i I did work really really hard in that initial time so for for at least the first six months it was very long hours every day seven days a week really trying to throw myself into it and that it was a very formative time for me and then and then i sort of i think also i started to grow in confidence i started to see that i could actually make a contribution Uh, and once i started to see that i could make a contribution i grew in confidence about what i could do I threw myself even more into it. And also, it was just the whole atmosphere. You know, there was a lot of very driven, good postdocs around me. Harvard itself, I mean, every week there'd be a lecture by a president, a prime minister, or or someone who's won a Nobel Prize, and I'd be thrown, going to all these stuff. You know, it was, people are passing through the land. People who are who are you know real leaders in science would just come to give a talk to our lab and I was like this is mad that we're like this guy could be selling it out to like 600 people and here he is in our lab talking to us over a bunch of donuts for like to, to, to the 20 of us in the lab and that and that was just I love that
0: but you just said there you got presidents and prime ministers coming <laughs> over and you know and they know a lot about science. Did you really just quote that in the current climate?
1: No, 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 no they didn't know a lot about science. No, there were great scientific leaders coming through, but there were also all this, the external program of, of, of stuff, you know, in the in the Harvard campus, I mean, I loved it. It was just, just brilliant. So was it always aimed to be a short burn over there? Or did you think you might settle over there? Uh, so I stayed uh, in the US for three and a half years and then Came back to set up my own lab, so I did just do one post up before setting up my lab. I uh, I would have stayed there, I think. Um, the uh, but my girlfriend at the time in in Boston, who, who came out from the, from the UK, and, and she's now my wife. Uh, we she she wanted to definitely come back to the UK, and and some of that was about if we have kids, then they want to be near the grandparents and. Uh, it's a bit hard. Oh, that's, that's, that's the story we tell. The problem with these, some of these things is that's, 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 that's how I've said it. That's how she says it. But now I don't know, because that's the, that's the, that's, I can, I know we say that I can't actually remember, uh, you know, whatever it is 20 years ago, if that's absolutely definitely how I was thinking, that I could have stayed in Boston. I know that, I know that I definitely always have a great affinity for the, the buzz and the, the can-do attitude of 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 the of of the great labs in the US. I always I always have a great affinity to that. Um, yeah. So you've you've collaborated with loads of people. You came back to Imperial. You obviously had
0: close collaborations there as well. How do you? I've not asked this, when How do you compare
1: the culture in the research labs in the US compared to the UK? Well. I mean, you know, it, it, it's hard because I'm also thinking about when I was really working there was some years ago now. So it's a bit hard to know in general. Uh, but I do, I think that there's some truth to all the stereotypes around that, that in a sense that the US probably is a bit more competitive. It can be quite harsh environment, uh, but also there is a greater sense of a of a can-do attitude. It can be true that people have huge labs with you know, 40 people. I mean, the lab I was in, it, uh, Jack Stromger had a lab of 20 where I was and he had another lab of 20 people uh, over at the medical campus of Harvard. So so I think all those stereotypes are true and it suits some people and maybe doesn't suit others. I mean, I really thrived in it because I, I really just loved the buzz of it. I mean, yes, people working very long hours, but I wanted to do that anyway. It was, it was just a really exciting time. So I... It's a bit hard for me to know in general because every, every, there's all different kinds of labs there's a great diversity in who does science and how uh but i think i think i i naturally uh uh you know so the the model at the l n b for example will be very different where you the labs tend to be much smaller much more much more focused and and you know you can't argue that the LNB n p hasn't done enormous achievement throughout the history of science. So there's lots of different ways in which I think you can succeed. I mean, but what, what I think is also really paramount important is you just stay focused on the actual science. You know, I, I, I'm, I would be wary of, of some structures where there is a tendency to empire build and you gain kudos by having lots of people, having lots of money, having lots of interactions. Uh, and so some of that's probably true in the UK and the US. So you've got to stay, as long as you're focused on that you're really, you know, the science you really want to do, there are lots of ways in which you can succeed in a fun.
0: I, I can see the appeal over a short burn, three to three and a half years. I, I I was nearly I nearly went over to the US myself, uh, and then the job at York came up and well, oh I can't say that because the in laws are probably going to watch it, but it's both further away from the indoors. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I am joking, Pam Jerry completely. Uh, uh, so I saw the appeal for it, but actually I had a young child at the time uh, and the York offer was, was, was really good for myself. And it was about a work-life balance. And actually I, I really fancied the hard burn. And uh, so I came to York and just put the hard burn in the UK. Uh, and probably regret, I, I don't know, I don't regret putting in loads. It's very fuzzy. The family memories back at that time were very fuzzy because I put so much effort into my work. so the work-life balance was probably a bit biased the wrong way at the time uh, but I think I had to do that to, to create the career that I wanted to create so it is possible but long term uh, the life work work life balance say back in the UK you've got two children as well uh, how, how do you feel that that compares and, and how do you balance that even today your work life balance
1: yeah I think that's that's uh really hard I, I find it really hard to uh do everything I want to do, be a, a dad, a husband, a scientist, a writer, whatever I want to do. I find it hard to switch between all those and keep them all going. I think what I've learned to do uh, during my career, which is the one small uh, uh, morsel of wisdom that I might have for anyone uh, starting out is is say no to the stuff you don't want to do. Uh, so if you can, if you can, of course. Um, you know, so... A lot of people might take on more administrative work in a university. For example, I mean, being a head of department, or or and and there's some great uh, reason to do that because you need you want great scientists to be head of department and drive things, and you want people to uh, uh, be in positions of of influence over, for example, maybe maybe the grant right, the grant uh, assessment process, or you know, be heads of of panels and things, and, and there's so much you can do actually in science right so from teaching to research to writing to 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 going out in the public to being on tv like there's so much you could do so you have to really you have to really decide what it is is the core thing you actually really really want to do and just stay focused on that because there's a lot of distractions and there's a lot of things come at you and also people are quite persuasive in trying to make you to do things uh oh it'd be really good for you to be on this panel that panel the other panel or or you know it you know, you, you're committed to doing reviews on three papers for uh, pnes and Nature, whatever, and then you get another one from Science. You're like, well, I, you know, already reviewing three. Maybe I, I won't do that one. So I think getting that balance right for yourself is really important. And it's okay, it's okay to say no to some things.
0: Yeah, I, I, and especially if you reason it as well. So I'll always go back and explain why I have to say no. Yeah. I, I think that's good. But thank you for not saying no to doing, uh,
1: to doing today. <laughs> well p i did actually in your first email say no and then, then you were very persuasive you said you sent me the email but it was at a time that i was like madly busy with something else and i thought you needed it to be done in 10 seconds i was like oh i can't i thought you, and then then you clarified and said oh no Then i thought okay yeah great this is great and actually p, I do think this is brilliant what you're doing i i think it's really great to have uh uh a look at microscopists as people and see what everyone's doing and i've watched uh, the well the three that are publicly available i know you've recorded some others but the ones that i've watched the ones that probably it's great it's great stuff and i think it's great well done well done to you Pete, and the team behind you doing it otherwise i'm gonna to start to go red although this
0: lighting will never show it so stop there uh but thank you yeah I
1: wasn't you, might going run to out. you might run out of microscopies you might have to call it the microscopists and something else, and something else, and something else, and then you sort of, you know. Yeah, trust me, I'll keep this swift so no one can actually copy it down, but no, the list is huge. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Do
1: you know, it's amazing just how many- Oh, no, have- I just saw all the people that said no, and then you had me at the, on the, at the bottom there that was like, you know, the last resort, <laughs> scraping the barrel for someone to talk to. Yeah, no, I, was, <laughs> I wasn't going to give up on you, Dan. I, it was okay. really-
0: That's good. As well, because, you know, there's a lot of I, I would, you're an immunologist first and foremost. You just, you know, done a lot of your research using the microscope,
1: and I think that was uh, really good to have in there. So you talk about hey, to Eric Betzig, Eric Betzing, who many of your listeners will know, Eric Betsig, right? He got the Nobel Prize. He he he's uh, he always says that the um, that the labels aren't that useful. You know, he says he won he won the Nobel Prize for chemistry, I think, right? And yep. you know, he doesn't. Uh, uh, what you know, he's he's a microscopist. Is he a physicist? Uh, he says himself, you know, he doesn't know a lot of chemistry. I'm, I'm not he, I'm not saying that. I reckon he does. He, he says he doesn't. And yet he won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry. So all these labels. Yeah, we, we have to get Eric to do one of these. That, that, that's
0: yeah. a big target in my sights at the moment. So what do you do
1: outside of work? What are your interests? Well, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I obviously I do... Write stuff. Uh, uh, writing is quite a significant part of my life. Um, is that you? Do
0: you count that as one of your hobbies? Is actually the the the, the writing itself? Because
1: uh, obviously... well, I don't know. It's more than a hobby to me because it's quite important to me. So it's, I'd say it's more than a hobby, uh, but it's. Um, but it's certainly outside the normal a lot of it is outside the, the sort of nine to five structure of, of whatever a normal day may or may not be so the, so 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 the, the writing image put up here is i think your first
0: publication first book more gen, this is more a lay or general public
1: yes yeah, so that, that was my first compatibility gene uh uh so that's that's yeah that's a, that's a, uh, the first one i wrote that's really the story of mhc but you know, it's hopefully hopefully written in a more general way than that. Uh, and then I wrote <laughs> really the book. sell otherwise. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was imp- important to me to, to do that story. Um, it was important to me because it's about human diversity, uh, essentially. That that's, that's one of the uh, most uh, wonderful things about the immune system. That the the genes that vary the most between every single person on the planet is nothing to do with how you look like. Uh, it's to do with the immune system, and to me. That was such an important message that I had to get out there that no one seemed to be writing about. So that's essentially what led me to write the book. Um, and then after that, I wrote another one called The Beautiful Cure. So,
0: uh, yeah,
1: beautiful so yeah. So, this so, beautiful book cover, by the way.
0: Yeah, great. In yellow as well. In fact, the, have you got that on your bookshelf behind you?
1: Uh, I can't, maybe. Is it, yeah, maybe. Probably. Yellow version? Probably I got the yellow version behind yeah. Me somewhere. Yeah. So um, yeah. So then I wrote about the immune system in general. So this was this was a book about uh, you know for both of these books I interviewed you know 30, 40 people to to get a sense of what they did. Um, yeah. So uh, so this book was a, is really about how the immune system works. Hopefully for a general audience. Uh, it's done. Yeah. I mean it's been really fun for me to do that. It, you know it's it's you know I don't it's done quite well. It's been translated to 15 languages. It got to number four on all the books on Amazon. So it's, it's done quite well. But and then, um, yeah, so writing is really important to me because uh, uh, I enjoy it. It gives me a chance to, to think about things in a broad way. Um, and also I find that the act of writing by articulating things in, in writing it, I, it generates new ideas. It generates me it helps the the thought process, so so I love doing that, um, you know. And then outside that, I mean, yeah, I have two teenage kids, so we, you know, we do stuff with them and stuff.
0: That's a joke. I generally find uh, <coughs> caffeine, sleep deprivation, and alcohol is the best way to get inspiration. Breeze <laughs> the mind of all the shackles of everything else that you've been drummed into <laughs> in you. That's it. So, thinking about your books, moving on here, what is? The fav- your favorite publication, whether you've authored it or co-authored it? Um, how many am I allowed? Just one? I'll, I'll give you two, I'll give you two. Is it uh,
1: and why? Just briefly. Uh, all right, well, I suppose the first, the, the um, my publication of, of the natural killer cell immune synapse was, was something I was proud of, I was proud of at the time. Uh, it felt like I really contributed something that was, that was useful. Um, uh, that was in 1999. The, dis- the discovery of nanotubes, um, uh, or the, uh, the co-discovery of nanotubes, I guess. So I, I was proud of that because it was, I-, I felt it was novel. It was new. It was something that uh, could be really important. Uh, and that was, that was when I was... So the-, so the first paper was my, I was doing the work in the lab, but these other papers around nanotubes were done by many great postdocs and students in my lab team. Bjorn Onfeldt, uh, Stephanie Swinsky, Anne Siobhan, and Chavon, and several others uh, led, led that work, and so I'm I am proud of doing that. And then all, and then it is true that writing those two books, and I'll have a third one out next year. So the writing writing books um, I'm proud of because because in a way, one of the you know it's it's, it's something you do that that has a uniqueness to it. So one of the really great struggles for any scientist, I think, is that although you're going to, you're 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 pushing you're you're giving up a lot of your life to make this contribution to push forward the knowledge sometimes it's just a case that you if you didn't do that someone else would have done it anyway maybe in 6 months time maybe in a year's time whereas when you're writing books uh, and you're putting your blood into that book uh, there's there's something about the fact that you know no one else would have done it or done it in that way. That That is more, there's a little bit more of you in that. So um, so so that so I'm proud of those, of the books. I mean, I'm not saying that they're great books. I'm just saying that I'm proud of having to manage to do that. Oh
0: God, look how well received they are. They're hugely well received. And oh, actually I, I I need to draw up another picture thinking about your book. So obviously this, this has gone mainstream. It's not just amongst the scientific community and, so this is you at the Hay Festival, is that correct? And, and oh yeah, we, we, this is obviously an international audience. Can you explain the Hay Festival and who you're sitting with here? Oh yeah, chatting? well,
1: so in this particular picture you've got there, that's Adam Rutherford, who does he's well known in the in the UK for his uh, 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 work on on radio, TV, and he's also published several books himself. And uh, I mean that that I am I I, I love that uh that interaction you know i really i do strongly think that science should be part of our culture in in a very general way um and so i do really enjoy being part the hay festival is is the most favorite event that we go to every year we've been going me and my family have been going every year for at least the last 10 years Uh, initially we just you just went as just just to enjoy it just to have fun it's like a, a, a about a 10 day long thing with I don't know how many lectures, 600 lectures, let's say, probably a lot more, uh, you know, several tents. It's like, a, you know, it's a real festival. I think something like 250,000 people go every year. Um, and I mean, this it, isn't a music festival, is it? This is a well, it fest. does have music in it. But it's true that most of it is about talks and ideas. And I've seen, you know, lots of Nobel Prize winners go, lots of uh, politicians go, lots of science, scientists. Science is a significant part of it. as a lot of uh, great fiction writers, people. It's, it's really, I love it. And I love that it's, kind of thing. I love the interactions.
0: I've always wondered at a book festival, if everyone just sits around and just reads a book quietly, completely different to a music
1: festival. I yeah, no, it's, it's really fun. It's, it's usually interactive. Festival. Yeah, it's usually interactive. Uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, the, and, and it, you know, it, it's, so I initially used to go a lot just just to have, just cause it's so much fun. Uh, and now, but now also cause I do stuff in it and I'm sharing events and giving my own talks. So now we, I get a little bit behind the scenes. I mean, I'm not like immersed in it in any in any profound way, but but but, but you know, at least getting you get to go to the green room and uh, and then you meet you know, can meet all these people that are quite inspirational. I love that, and I love going to festivals and uh, um, I've done things at other other more music orientated festivals, and I love the engagement, the interaction with people. And the interaction with people is what makes what makes it great fun. Both science and, and literary events and, and music events, all of this stuff. So yeah, it's a huge part. It's a huge part of what I think is really uh, good fun to do. So uh, I'm sorry, moving on swiftly
0: because you said that you have got all sorts of polit- politicians and everything, and yet I guess if the politician doesn't come to you, you <laughs> go to it. So this is a picture of you outside Number Ten Downing Street. So uh... oh
1: yeah, yeah. So this, you know, so <laughs> Prime I Minister think. Of I think, you know, so certainly not, you know, we published a, you know, certainly not because of our latest research, unfortunately. I mean, I don't, you know, I guess the government isn't necessarily hanging on um, uh, our latest scientific paper. But because I've, but I think because I wrote books that are hopefully reasonably accessible about how the immune system works and, and, and things like that, I have, I have ended up... Uh, Getting immersed in in other things, and, and I and I enjoy that, and I also do think that it's important for science and scientists uh, to interact as widely as possible with with the world that's out there. Um, it's not that I have I don't have any influence whatsoever. This was just uh, an event uh, at Downing Street uh, uh, that happened uh, in the beginning of the year, um, but but the, but it's that interaction and that engagement which is, which comes from. I mean, it was very scary in the beginning. You know, When I first thought I wanted to write a book, I was really quite scared about how others would view me, which is obviously uh, uh, a bit of a silly way to look at things. But um, but I did think that all the scientists might be angry. They might be angry for any number of reasons. Firstly, they might think, well, if you've got time to sit around writing books, then obviously you're not 120% on the research. So why are we going to fund your next grant? And I also thought that... Um, you know, So I was a bit worried about how this would all play out. But I have to say that now that I have done these kinds of things, it's, it couldn't be more wonderful. I mean, I do, still do get some uh, uh, antagonism from other scientists over things, over sort of public outreach work. But overall, it's been hugely positive. Uh, and, I've, and I like in, interacting with everything that's out there. I have to point out that you stood outside 10
0: Downing Street in a suit,
1: yeah, I wore and... a suit. So I've, I think, I have to check. I think that's the same suit that you know. I have a suit. I have a suit. I, I have three shirts that are all pale blue. I have a suit, and uh I think that's the same suit I've worn for I don't know how long. But I do. I did put on the suit for that event. Well, I did <laughs> tell you at the start you haven't changed,
0: <laughs> <laughs> but the suit was a very different compared to little t-shirts, a jumper.
1: Do, do you own a lot of suits pete no
0: <laughs> no no i I've, i think i probably have two that fit properly
1: yeah i've got a lot that I don't fit that's probably
0: early 90s style that are a bit too big on me now and
1: <laughs> when after lockdown i'll be down a bit worried about getting into any seat think <laughs> <laughs> so, we've
0: gone through that so probably quick one what how much time do you now spend in the lab
1: Oh, uh the actual doing the pipetting? Yeah. Oh, I hate it. Oh, I've always hated lab work. Oh, so I never uh I never did I never really wanted to do lab work. So um yeah, so you know, so I went to the US and did this postdoc for three and a half years. Obviously, was that was all intense, that was all lab work. I mean I, then when I came back, I did do experiments for some years, but I I'm not a huge fan of doing the actual experiments for me it's about thinking about the experiments what do they mean what what should we do what will we do next is that well controlled how's it going to work out it's it's the the it's an intellectual feast to have all these people come to me with 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 what they're doing and discussing that and i've never never really been a, i don't need to be i don't feel a need to be preparing this, the the samples myself um, and I and I've never I did I never really enjoyed that I always enjoyed the the thinking and the brainstorming and the buzz of it and the and the what does it mean and that's that's what I, that's what I, that's always the way I wanted to have a lab.
0: So you don't miss the lab? That's blatantly obvious, then. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely don't miss the lab. So lab, no lab. So you're definitely office rather than the lab. So what about US or UK?
1: <clears throat> Quick answer: which is best, US, UK? They, they just both have different uh <laughs> things about them but right now right now looking at the leadership in each country uh well yeah that's true you might want to you might want to think Germany? about some What's yeah i don't know i don't know uh okay but you know london or manchester what london or pressure? manchester Oh well that's also tricky. So uh I missed Oh uh, my god, I, you as bad as a politician. Never I love, you know the art and culture and buzz of London is second <laughs> to none. I absolutely love it, and I've desperately miss it in Manchester. But in Manchester, uh, you know, the air's a bit cleaner. We're right next to the peak district, so it's beautiful. Uh, and there's a slightly different tone uh to when people come in and out of work, they haven't just done a Hectic commute on the tube, it's a little bit more relaxed. So, there are pros and cons. I, I actually genuinely love them both.
0: I, I'm not going to ask my next question. Because what think, is it?
1: What is it? Well, you, you research or author,
0: and we have to be so careful because you said you met with some antagonism. Mm-hmm. And I think it's true. Any celebrity scientist immediately seems to polarize the science community between those who think they're doing a great service and great work and others that think I, it's almost like turning to the dark side. Yeah. And I think it's really harsh because they're great communicators. Uh, yeah,
1: I think I think actually, um, especially as as uh, as I, as people's journeys in science progress, everyone does broaden what they do to some extent. You know, you start off uh, just doing your experiments in your lab as a PhD student, then you broaden as a as a postdoc. You you, you know, you supervise others, and you broaden what you're doing. Then, as a PI, you now have quite a lot of collaborations, disparate projects. And then, as your time as a PI goes on, you often tend to also broaden what you do. You would interact with, uh, for example, become get on panels or national committees. You would have set the agenda uh, in various strategic things, either in your university or with industry or with. So everyone broadens what they do, and so. So it's definitely important to me that it's not an either or thing, that it's, uh, you know, I, I, I wanna be a, uh, I wanna do research, that's totally top priority to me, but it's also true that I take writing quite seriously. It's not, I'm not here just to piss about. Okay,
0: so I'm gonna very quickly, I wanna to get to know you a bit better now. So DVD or cinema or, or it at home and cinema. Oh my God, how old fashioned DVD. Stream at home or cinema? cinema but not with covid
1: okay okay film tv 120 film film what's your favorite film oh i don't know i used to say dead poet society but again it's kind of a reflex uh so i don't know i'd have to think about it more i also love 2001 dead Poets society what is what i often say is my favorite film favorite christmas film oh, i got no idea but the very recently uh My son, son for the first time, watched Die Hard uh, with us. That's That's a Christmas film. That's kind of fun.
0: (laughs) Die Hard, it's one of the best Christmas films. That and Love Actually, I think 50-50. I'm not sure which (laughs) I prefer. You can't get much more contrasting than the two, can you? Eat in or eat out under normal times?
1: Uh, Eat in. Cook or wash up? Uh, Just stick it in the microwave, and hopefully it's in a disposable bowl. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, uh, oh. I, I haven't got a comeback on that one okay <laughs> uh, got, no, no this is gonna be a real challenge what's your funniest science joke oh, I
1: don't have one I don't have a science joke me <laughs> 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 what about the funniest joke just in general oh a man walks into a bar and said ouch it was an iron bar. Oh my yeah. god, that's so old. I know. I am not, not i am not i am not a comedian. What, you, what my, my who children came will up, love it. Who it came up with these questions is what I want to know. What?
0: I, only you, told my ch- I, I told my youngest son that joke only this week.
1: Yeah, I mean well, well, I don't know, you know, if you have you got have we not got questions from the audience? I'm sure they'll be better than this, <laughs> Pete. <laughs>
0: okay. So okay. Two uh, we are out of time. So right. very quickly what what
1: what's the next big science question to solve in one sentence uh i think it's i think it's about human diversity well there's so many i mean there's sleep there's aging but but also i think uh diversity is actually really important we we don't have a good handle on on what the differences between people really mean in in especially in in immune systems and health uh there's a you know there's a lot to go and it's going to be uh, culturally, very important to think about this in a deep way. I'm still thinking about your bar joke. <laughs> 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 I bet to you got, I bet I did the worst joke. I bet you got better jokes from every other person. It's first you. time
0: I've asked that question. Well, hopefully they last <laughs> I'm going to keep that one. That's Are you going to keep it, it in? Okay, okay, What's the uh, <laughs> what, what, tech, what, what technology needs to be developed to help you move forward? What's the next big technology development that you need to help solve and move forward?
1: Uh, well, the, the the biggest bottleneck in, in the type of thing we do is is like I alluded to before, it's where it's... I mean, there are two things. What, it's the complexity of what we look at is still a problem. We're still very often looking at individual cells, groups of cells, and it needs to be a more physiological environment that we're tackling these questions in. But really what we need is nanoscale imaging uh, in 3D in, in, in an animal or a human, which is a pipe dream. But don't forget, when your career and my career started, it would have been a pipe dream to have a white light laser source. It would have been a pipe dream to have nanoscale imaging pretty much routine in, in all of the universities. So, you know, these pipe dreams can happen in, in years, decades to come. It takes a spark, a few, you know, some of these people that we mentioned during this, the people that developed super-resolution microscopy, are truly inspirational. So, you know, I, I I can't do that kind of that kind of level of step change. Uh, that that's that's where we got to be going.
0: No, I think yeah, nothing is impossible. I don't think it just takes time and money, <laughs> and and it may take many centuries or more. But I, <laughs> so I think we'll get there, especially on that front. Dan, our time is up. I'm really, so gosh, we could do another hour. I have loads of questions that I didn't get through, but do you know what? It's been a great chat with you, Dan. Thank you for catching great. up. Great.
1: All right. Thanks so much, Pete, and hope to see you in person sometime soon. Yeah, Dan, brilliant. Thank you very much. Take care. Cheers. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to The Microscopists, a Bite sized Bio podcast sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the dash microscopists.